All right, well, thank you all again for being here. So today is week two of our Jonah lesson, and I'm not quite sure how many weeks I'm going to go into this. We'll, we'll take it week by week, but it'll be, at least be a couple more lessons after this. Last week, we covered Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, for anyone who is not here. And I'm just going to give a very, very quick recap of that lesson, because it's important. We're going to build upon that lesson for today's lesson. Uh, so, so really quickly, the, the big thing, we, the, one of the major points we were trying to make last week uh, is that we needed to understand what the original reader understood in the text to properly understand the rest of the book of Jonah, to properly understand uh, really what God's trying to tell us in the book of Jonah. And so that's a true statement for any Bible, any book of the Bible you go through. You need to understand what the original reader understood. If any of you guys are in Cliff Sanders' Sunday school class, you've probably heard him say that a thousand times, right? You need to understand what the original reader understood. And so last week we went through and we tried to understand, put ourselves in the shoes of the original reader by going through the geography, the characters, the biblical history, and the world history you know, of that event. We, we talked about how Jonah was this well-known prophet. We could trace back his ancestry through 2 Kings. We knew that the people of Israel would have understood who Jonah actually was at that point in time. We understood the geography, right? We, he was started in Israel. He was told to go up to Nineveh, which would have been north, Nineveh's Mosul, Iraq, if you think about current day areas. Uh, instead of that, he went all the way to Tarshish, which is on the south side of Spain. And so, and Spain at that point in time was kind of considered the, the ends of the earth, so to speak. And so whenever it says he's going to Tarshish, he was literally trying to go as far away as he possibly could to get away from where God was telling him to go. The geography was important. We talked about the world history. Uh, the world history is important. This is set during the time of the Assyrians. The, uh, the Assyrians were in control of the ancient Near East at that point in time, and the Assyrians were absolutely brutal people. Right? They had uh, taken Israel in as a vassal state at that point in time, uh, so Israel's paying tribute to not be conquered pretty much at that point. And the Assyrians were the worst of the worst. So if you go and there's all kinds of biblical history or, that you can find in the uh, London Museum of History, the British Museum of History, where you can just see how horrible these people were. They would flay their captives. They would, as you walked into the throne room, you, would, you could walk past and see these visuals of what would happen to you if you were going to cross the Assyrians. And so they were very, very brutal in their tactics. And then biblical history, we talked about how the northern kingdom had split off. We talked about all the different run-ins that the northern kingdom had already had with the Assyrians. And we said all of that, all of that context, we were setting to better understand what the original reader of the text would have known. And we did that to understand why it was that Jonah, instead of, instead of obeying God's command, why it was that he fled. Does anyone remember why Jonah fled? Why did we come up the context? Mr. Langer. He was angry. He hated the Assyrians. He absolutely hated the Assyrians. He hated the Ninevites. And so if, if you're Jonah in this context, you hate them so much that you don't want to go and do what God is asking you to do because you know that God is powerful enough 
to actually do what he only God can do, and he could turn the hearts of the Assyrians. They could repent, and if they did, God might spare them the judgment that Jonah wanted the Assyrians to undergo, to forego. Right? He wanted the Assyrians to be judged the wrath of God. He hated them that much, and so because of that hatred, he went the other way, disobeying God's command because he didn't want the Assyrians to be spared. That's the real context we need to have. We need to understand Jonah's hatred to understand the rest of the book of Jonah. So you may wonder yourself, I just taught the entire last lesson in less than five minutes. Why do we have to do it for 40 minutes last class, right? But, but it's, it's uh, you know, it, it, it just, just trust me on it. So today, we're going to get into the uh, next portion of this text. Uh, we're going to go verses 4 through 17. And what I want us to do today is I want us to kind of start with that same premise. To understand this passage and the rest, you also need to understand what the original readers would have known, what they would have thought, how they would have understood the dynamics in this text. And so if you've read this text before you came in, just just in case you have, I'm getting ready to read it. But if you've read this text before, What characters in this text we're getting ready to cover do you think we may need to know a little bit more about to understand context? And I'm about to kill this microphone if you can't tell. Um, What characters do you think we need to know a little bit more about? Those on the ship. You get the A-plus award today, Mr. Langer. Uh, Those on the ship. So, hold on, I'm going to fix this guy eventually. Those on the ship. The sailors on the ship. These are new characters we haven't been introduced to before. Uh, They play a part in this. We need to understand more about them. So as I'm reading the text today, I want you to be thinking, what do you need to know about those characters on the ship as I read the text? So let me, me I'm just going to read it quickly. Uh, Verse 4 through 17. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship to the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Who is this? What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, and they're using... In the Old Testament, when you see Lord capitalized like this, they're saying Yahweh, right? This is the, they're, they're talking directly to the God of Israel. So, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done it as it pleased you. 
So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, anytime you study the book of Jonah, the first question everybody asks is, what is the fish? Is it a whale? What is it? Did it really happen? Did it not really happen? And we're not going to cover that today. So we will cover that next week. But I'm just going to say, I'm not answering that question today. Come back next week. We'll talk all about the fish. But what I want you guys to do for a moment, and you guys are going to talk while I try to fix this microphone. Uh, based on the text, what do you know about these men based on what you read in the text? Right, what do you know? What, just try to get yourself into the mind of the Israelites at the time who have been reading this. What do you know about those men? And bonus points goes to anyone who knows more about those men based on biblical history. Talk about your table a little bit. What do you actually know about those guys from what we've learned? And we'll come back and I'll talk about why that matters here in just a second. All right. Well, let's, let's go ahead and bring it back. And we'll talk, we'll talk more of the groups here in a second. But So we can learn a lot about these guys in the text based on the behaviors. I mean, we know that they're sailors. We know that they're sailing to a certain area. We know, I mean, we, we look at this, they're worshiping multiple gods, uh, which would have been a very normal cultural thing at that point in time in this area. I mean, remember, at this point in time in the Old Testament, most of the people believed in all the areas, most of the people believed that gods were geographically based, right? So, so the Moab people had a different god, these people had a different god, these people had a different god, and those gods were kind of contained to their geography. I mean, it was a radical thought that the people of Israel said, our God is the one true God and the God of all the earth and the heavens. I mean, that was a, that was a crazy thought at that point in time. So, so we understand a little bit about their religious viewings, their profession, etc. Now, we're, there's something here in the text, though, that the original reader of this completely knew, completely got, that we don't know because it's not blatantly spelled out in the text. Who were these people? Like, what, if you, who were these sailors? Do you know where they came from, what their, what their people were? Does anybody know? They weren't necessarily Spaniards, but that's a, that's a good guess. Wayne? Yeah, Wayne, yeah. yeah. So these, these people, and this is, this is just, this is a great deal. Anytime you see sailors or people who are, you know, merchant ships, anything in the Old Testament in particular, normally you'll find that they're Phoenicians. And so the Phoenicians, an ancient culture, ancient people existed way before, existed way after this story. Uh, the Phoenicians are very interesting people. They were skilled tradesmen. They were, they were very great craftsmen. They were the best of the best shipbuilders and merchant builders. Uh, and we learn a lot about the Phoenicians through history as well as through the Bible. And so the Phoenicians, if you, if you just go back to history, the Phoenicians are discussed in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Homer talks about them. Uh, Herodotus in, in the histories talks about the Phoenicians. They were early, early settlers and traders in ancient Greece. Uh, the two major cities in the kind of Phoenician kingdom at this point in time would have been Tyre and Sidon, uh, which we read about all throughout the Bible. Think about kind of modern-day Lebanon. Uh, whenever you think about Lebanon in the Old Testament, what's maybe the first image that comes to mind? 
Think about the trees, right? The trees of Lebanon, like the cedars, the wood. You know, who, who, who paid a lot of money to all the Lebanese people to, 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 for construction projects? Solomon, Solomon right? Yeah, he, he, I'm, he, I'm sure you're right. So anyway, so it's the, the uh, you're very well possible, right? I asked Bill. So, so Solomon, we, we won't get into all the exploits of Solomon in this class today, but I just, all I want to say is the Phoenicians were a well-known people, right? A very well-known people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so there's going to be some other people on, those, on the boat as well, but, but they, had, they had specific gods. Uh, some of the other people who may have been traveling on the boat probably had specific gods. Remember, because everyone had their own god, right? So wherever you were from, they assumed that there was a god of that geography. Right. But the, the boat and kind of the major crew normally this time would have been Phoenicians. And, uh, yeah, well, well, let me keep going or else I'm going to get distracted on what I'm trying to say. So... So on, on this, on the, the Phoenicians, the, the reason I make this point, the original readers of this text would have known that this was a Phoenician boat, right? And that's important. And it's important for a few reasons. One is, let's talk about a little bit of the interplay with some of the Phoenicians and the people of Israel at this point in time. So I told you uh, last class, we went through the biblical history, that Jonah would have been 8th century B.C., Right in the northern kingdom of Israel, prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. So this is, you guys get all-star points in heaven if anybody gets this right, right? Less than 100 years before the setting of this book of Jonah, this story, there was a pretty important thing that happened in the Bible with this Phoenician princess uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel with a bunch of people. Does anyone know what the name of the Phoenician princess was? Not Esther, that's going to be passed in the Persian kingdom, but, but, but good guess. No, no, no. Any thoughts on this? I don't want to have to call on Bill, but Bill is here. I may have to call on him. Jezebel, look at you, Jezebel. Jezebel was a Phoenician princess. And, and, and remember that little plot I gave you last week on all the, all the kings of Israel that had like a thumbs up and a thumbs down? If they were good, you got a thumbs up. If they were neutral, kind of thumbs like this. And most of them were thumbs down. You know, the kings were kind of all pathetic, especially in the northern kingdom. If Jezebel were to get a thumbs up or a thumbs down in terms of the people of Israel's perspective of her, what would she get? Ow, like two, like Siskel and Ebert, two thumbs down, right? Multiple thumbs down. Jezebel, less than 100 years before this story takes place, has, you know, she's married to Ahab. Let me sure. Yeah, Ahab. And, uh, and, and pretty much, pretty much just obliterates the, the, all the prophets and the priests of the northern kingdom of Israel. It just slaughters them, right? Just, she is wicked. She's trying to get rid of, of Yahweh. She's trying to get rid of God. She's trying to replace it with their own worship of, of, uh, of her gods. And just, it's, it's, it's a horrible scene. So we see that great scene with Elijah and everything that, that, that commences. And then last week, we talked about the Assyrian interaction with King Jehu. And I told you how Jehu was kind of the godfather, you know, who settled all family business and slaughtered everybody. Jehu is the guy who ultimately comes and, and kills Jezebel, throws her out the window, the dogs look up her blood. It's a great scene in the Bible. You know, people who don't know that this stuff is in the Bible read these stories and just think it's incredible. I heard, I heard just quick aside, I heard this uh, deal in a book I was listening to where Winston Churchill's son made a wager with Churchill whenever they were away on a war battle and made a wager with Churchill that he couldn't read the entire Bible in two weeks. 
And he made the wager because Winston Churchill's son and his son's friend just wanted to shut Winston Churchill up for two weeks while they were traveling with him because he always talked. And so Winston Churchill had never read the Bible before, though. And so he took him up on the wager, and he read the entire Bible in two weeks. And the entire time, he just keeps laughing out loud because he had no idea all these brutal stories were in the Bible. And he would kept just going, did you know God did this? You know, and would just keep telling the stories so he didn't shut up. Anyway, there's some crazy stories in the Bible. Jehu kills Jezebel, but Jezebel had done all this destruction to the people of Israel. Less than 100 years before the story of Jonah takes place. So all this to say, the only reason I'm saying this is if we're the original reader and we're trying to understand this text and we're talking about these Phoenician people, what, what do you think still resonates in the heart of the Israelites whenever they think of a Phoenician influence in the story? They're thinking of Jezebel. They're thinking of all the destruction. I mean, just, just think about, I mean, less than 100, like, like this is almost near the time of comparing where we are today to World War II. All right, so think about the feeling that the Jewish people still have today for the Holocaust, right? Think about that feeling, that resentment that is still going to be there towards Nazi Germany, right? It's not that far removed. So you're going to have that same sentiment, that same horrible feeling when it comes to talking about the Phoenicians. All that to being said, the reason I'm, I'm getting into this is Whenever you start putting together all the pieces of this story, think about what we talked about last week, just how much Jonah must have hated the Assyrians. And then you see this story play out where, um, where you've got this Phoenician boat that's going, and, and what, do these, what do these sailors do? They, 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 they're sitting there, and they are trying to save the life of Jonah even whenever they realize that Jonah is the reason for their destruction, right? The reason for the storm, they find it. And Jonah says, throw me off the boat. And, and those, those evil Phoenicians are like, you know what? We know you're the reason. But instead, we're going to try to still row to shore before we, we go down that road. We're going to try to save your life, even though you're the reason this is causing us. Right? You see, all these things play out. And you start comparing the character of these Phoenicians and what they're doing the fact that they repent, they, they cry out to God. You know, it's, it even says here in the text that whenever they get back to shore, most likely, they make sacrifices to God. They repent like that, right? These guys on the sailor, they try to save Jonah's life. They, they seem to have a lot better godly character than the great prophet Jonah actually has. Yep. I think they, I mean, because Jonah makes a statement that, that I, I, I'm a Hebrew, I, I follow Yahweh, you know, the God of the heavens and the sea, pretty much makes this claim that, oh, by the way, my God's the real God, all-powerful God, and they have a recognition of the power of God, and there is fear there, as there ought to be fear there, whenever you're recognizing that. And they, they also probably, yeah, do you remember, they, they, may, they may remember the stories of what happened when Elijah came and, and did all that as well. So, so you see, though, this turn of direction with the Phoenician sailors. You see all this, and you compare and contrast the character and what's occurring between the two. It almost seems a bit ridiculous. I mean, just, just hear me out on this just for a moment. It almost seems outrageous, right? That, that you've got this great prophet Jonah, you know, of, of noble pedigree almost, right? People know who he is. And then you've got these dirty Phoenicians, Right? And, and, and at this point in time, they're repenting, they're changing their mind, they're trying to save the man's life. 
right? And then, and then there's going to come a time where uh, God's going to come and a great fish is going to swallow up Jonah. And then Jonah's going to eventually go to Nineveh and he's going to preach the smallest sermon ever preached in the history of man and the greatest revival that has ever occurred with the most evil nation that has ever existed is going to happen. You put all those clues together, right? This story seems ridiculous, absolutely outrageous. It's almost, it's almost like the way the story is being told is meant to convey almost an audacity of this story. So I want you to think about that for a second. And I'm not saying the story didn't actually happen. Don't read that into my text. But the way it's being told, it's being purposely told to kind of be outrageous. So in literature or film today, what do we call something that is purposely humorous or outrageous or ridiculous to make a point? What's that called? Satire. That's called satire. I, I, my, my opinion on this, I think Jonah is purposely written with a satirical tone because satire is used to make points at times. And sometimes satire is the perfect vehicle to make really important points. I want to give you an example of satire, and this is just for fun, just to, to illustrate this point. So my favorite satire of all time, I mean, by far my favorite satire, is a movie called Dr. Strangelove. Has anyone seen Dr. Strangelove before? Raise of hands. Anyone seen Dr. Strangelove? I felt like Dr. Strangelove would have been the appropriate film reference for this group because you guys, you guys, I mean, this came out, what was Dr. Strangelove? Would have been late 60s? Yeah, Slim Pickens, Stanley Kubrick, 64. Well done. So, so Dr. Strangelove, just real quick for anyone who hasn't seen it, I'm going to do the best I can to give you a very quick plot line of Dr. Strangelove. So you've got this uh, military commander uh, at a Royal Air Force base in Europe during the Cold War. And he tells his general to, to put them on, on red alert. And that means that these planes that are flying up near Soviet, Soviet Russia all the planes at this Royal Air Force are two hours away from their failsafe point, which means if they get the order to go drop nuclear weapons, they get up to a certain point, and if a code has not been delivered to them to call them back, they will drop nuclear weapons in Russia and the Soviet Union at the time. So all this to say, what's happened is this commander of the Royal Air Force Base has given this order to go fly out there, but no one had actually given him that order. Apparently, this guy is paranoid and a bit crazy, and he thinks, he believes, that the Russians have infiltrated the fluoride system in America and are trying to kill us uh, by, by messing with our bodily fluids, as he calls it. And so he's concocted this plan that he's going to, to just obliterate the Soviet Union with, this, with, with, with the nuclear weapons. Well, so his commander, kind of, or his, the guy he's working with, figures out that there's been no order given, and he tries to stop it. But the guy locks him in a room and won't let him out, and so there's no way to get the message to the planes. Eventually, um, the war room, the command central back of the U.S., figures out what's going on. They try to send the army into the Air Force Base to, to stop this from occurring, they can't do it. The guy shoots himself, and he's the only one with the code. So now they have no idea what to do. These planes are flying to their target in Russia. They're going to you know, detonate nuclear weapons, and they don't know what to do. So they call the Russians, and they tell them what's going on. 
And the Russians then, the funniest thing about all this, the Russians then convey to the Americans, be like, hey, by the way, we've got this new doomsday device. And what happens is that if we're ever hit with a nuclear weapon, then all of these nuclear weapons that we have automatically detonate and it's going to create this nuclear cloud across the entire earth and, you know, last like 93 years or something and pretty much all civilization will be over. And so then Dr. Strangelove, this, this former German Nazi scientist that's advising the president, Dr. Strangelove looks at him and he goes, you have a doomsday device, right? A doomsday device is a perfect deterrent if you tell people you have a doomsday device. No one knew you had a doomsday device. And so he goes, well, the, the Russians say, we were going to tell the League of Nations or whatever it was, you know, the, the next week uh, about the doomsday device. And so now they're trying to shoot down the American planes. They find the code. They find the code on the guy's deal. They're able to call back all the planes except for one because he had an equipment malfunction. And that's the great epic scene where Slim Pickens can't be called back. And uh, the, the Bombay is jammed and he rides on it with his cowboy hat going down and then everything explodes and the world ends. The funny thing is, right before, once they realize that there's going to be a nuclear detonation, they're all sitting in the war room, and they're fighting about it and fighting about it, and there's that great line that says, you can't fight in the war room, which is just hilarious. Uh, but then they start discussing, they start discussing, Dr. Strangelove advises, he goes, listen, you need to get everybody into mine shafts. You need to have a 10 to 1 female to male ratio for reproduction. And then they start worrying about a mine shaft gap between the Russians, just making fun of the whole missile, the nuclear weapon gap between the Russians. One of the Russians who's in the room trying to help starts taking pictures of the mine shaft designs so that they can have competition with the Americans once they're all underground trying to preserve. So it's just, it's just this crazy, crazy satire. Satire has a point, though. This was made at the height of the Cold War. What was the point of Dr. Strangelove? What point were they trying to make? What's that? Yeah, this whole idea of mad, mutually assured destruction at the time is just crazy. It's just insane. I mean, what the buildup that was occurring, the, I mean, the whole doomsday device thing was actually being seriously discussed as a deterrent strategy. The whole thing was just insane, and it took this just outrageous, outrageous satire, right, to almost make us realize how ridiculous, just how ridiculous what we were doing, the policies we were putting in place, both sides of the equation, just how ridiculous it all was. Everybody's going to go watch Dr. Strangelove today, aren't you? It's, uh, yeah, it's, I, I, would, I would highly recommend it, but... Yeah, I got to give my dad credit. He's saying I'm the only 36-year-old in America who's seen Dr. Strangelove, and he may be right. My dad sat me down one day and made me watch Dr. Strangelove, and I'm so I'm so glad about it. And so, yeah, it's a it's, so it's just Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers. So uh, anyway, anyway, all all to say is satires used to make a point, especially when things are absolutely ridiculous. So here's my question for group discussion. If we, if you trust me just for a moment, and there's different interpretations of this, but if you trust it, I feel like Jonah is written with a satirical tone. I really do. What point, what overall point do you think God is trying to get his people to understand in the book of Jonah 
by using this kind of outrageous chain of events and the way it's being told. What overall point in this book do you think God's trying to tell his people? Talk about that for just a few moments and we'll see if anybody's right. All right, well, let's, let's bring it back so I don't keep you guys in here all day. Uh, but did anyone, anyone has a, any thought on this? If, and like I said, just to re-summarize my thinking on this, I believe this is, has a satirical tone. And like I said, don't misinterpret that. I do believe this is actually also a real story. It's a good question, and we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But I think it has a satirical tone on purpose. And satire always takes an object makes it look outrageous to make a point. And so what point is God making in this? Any thoughts, Bob? Yeah, and you think about, you think about how often, think about how Jesus and, and Paul in particular, think, think, think about when some of the reaction that occurs when God's grace is going to be bestowed upon the non-Jewish people all throughout the Bible and the reaction of the people, right? It's all, I mean, whenever Jesus makes a little subtle reference to it, they try to throw him off a cliff, Right? I mean, so it, it's, it's, uh, there's a strong reaction whenever you see grace being bestowed upon, upon the Gentiles. Any other thoughts on this? That's a good thought. And I think one, one learning we should all get out of this, if, and it's, it kind of runs through all that, God's will is always going to be done. Depending on who he's using, it's a good question, but he's always going to make sure his will is accomplished. Here's where, here's where I really came down on this. If, if, I, if I really thought through the tone of this and, and what happens at the end of this story, which we'll keep, we'll keep going through, but if you look at the overall, overall point I think is being made, I feel like God is sitting there and he's talking to the Israelites, right? He's talking to the Israelites at first. If you think about the original readers of this, and he's saying, look, I've sent you prophets. I've sent you kings. I perform miracles. I have fought your battles. I have provided you a land. You know what? There was, there was already cities and fortified walls and, and vineyards in this land that I give you. I have done all of this for you. You, have, you are my people. I have carved you out. I have made a great nation out of you. Everything you can imagine. I have kept every promise, right? He's talking to his people. He goes, and you are not repenting. You are, you, are, you are living a life away from me. You have abandoned me. You are following the gods of the Canaanites. You have, you have broken my covenant. You have broken all of my commands. Yet I still have sent you prophet after prophet. I've given you chance after chance. And my very own people, my people, you're not repenting. But those Phoenicians on the boat, like that, they repented. Those Ninevites, I'm going to send Jonah to, who, does, who, by the way, this great prophet doesn't want to go to, right? Like that, they're going to repent. Those, those dirty Gentiles, so to speak, right? I mean, that's, that's what these people are going to be reading, the Israelites at the time. Those people will repent. They will change their mind. They will change their direction. But my very own children won't, right? That's why this, I think that's why this story, it would seem so outrageous. It would seem like satire to the people because it just, it would be crazy to think that a prophet of God would go all the way to Nineveh to talk to the most evil empire in the world and they would repent. And God's like, exactly. They will, you won't. He is like shaking them. It's almost like you've had a kid who just won't listen, right? He's almost shaking them, showing them how outrageous it is, saying, please repent, repent, 
right? Change your mind, change your direction, follow after me. I'm giving you chance after chance. Please repent. This seems outrageous for a reason, right? So that's what the people, that's what the people should have heard. That's what they should have learned. Did the did all the Israelites in the northern kingdom learn this lesson? Absolutely not. Keep going down prophet after prophet that's going to follow Jonah. They don't learn this lesson. The Assyrians eventually come in, destroy them, disperse throughout. Right? But God, we've talked about this before when we talked about judgment. God always provides loving warnings to his people and chance after chance to repent. God's grace is absolutely amazing. But that's what he's doing. Jonah, Jonah is a great example of someone who's just going through the motions. And we're going to see that again next week whenever we talk about what Jonah actually does in the belly of the great fish. He's just going through the motions. How do we apply this lesson to us today? What would be the great American church satire? What would be the great Crossings Community Church satire? What would have to be so outrageous that it's like God's just kind of shaking us, asking us to wake up? Just think about that for a moment. As I, as, I really, as I really considered that, and I was like, if this story was being told today with me as the central figure as Jonah or one of you as the central figure of Jonah, and he's trying to, tell that, trying to really pull this lesson out, I'd easily get, see God going, look at this great nation I've given you. You are free to worship me wherever you want to worship me. Not only that, just look across the pond here. You've been given the most beautiful sanctuary in the world to go and worship God. And not only that, the finance guy has worked through an allotment of the capital prioritization process to make sure your media equipment is always up to date as well, right? You have the best LED light display in that sanctuary that you could ever imagine. I can't begin to tell you the, the intricacy of the soundboard that occurs in that sanctuary, right? You can... You've been given a congregation of people who love you and who will encourage you, who will spur you to increase your faith, who will comfort you in times of sorrow. You've been given the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, who will lead you and sanctify you into righteousness. Right? All of these things I have given my children, and I don't mean to lay a guilt trip on this, but I'm going to. All of these things God has given us, and the average church member attends church 1.46 times a month, right? And, and falling. And I just think about that going, it's almost like God just like waking us up. How, out, how, just, how outrageous does that sound whenever we say it like that? When we realize all that's been entrusted to us, the great gift of God, the great gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the great gift of the body of Christ in the church, the, the incredible majesty of what the church actually is, what, what, what Christ has given us? When we think about that, how do we not respond the way God truly desires that we respond? In obedience and praise and reverence and complete engagement and complete surrender. Right? He's making that same point to Jonah and the Israelites thousands of years ago that he's making to us now. You are my children, right? respond respond like you are my children right so so i say all that and i'm very interested anyone has a different takeaway on this text but that hit me pretty hard as i really walk through it jonah's going through the motions i go through the motions a whole lot sometimes we have to stop and remember even if it takes satire to do it but stop and remember the greatness that has been entrusted to us by being followers of christ 
Make sense? Any questions on that? Everybody feel a little guilty? Yeah? All right. Good Baptist guilt. You know, it's, yeah. All right, here, real quick. Wait, I'll come to you, Michael. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk more about that next week. We'll talk, we'll talk more about Christ within this text in a, in a prophetic way next week. And, and then I'll, I'll, I'll try to wrap in some of your thoughts there to c- clarify those. Yeah, Mr. Michael. Yeah. Yeah, and, it's, and, and so you think about this. Jonah, Jonah, Jonah says the right things, and, and, and we're going to see this next week when he's in the belly of the fish. He says all the right things. His heart's not in it, right? It, to your point, it's very easy to be a, hey, all's well, I go to church, right? That's not what God's saying here. He's saying, he's saying you are my children, right? Let's, let's respond to that grace that he has bestowed upon us. The, the, the grace of the pardon in our lives, the grace of the power that's in our lives, Let's respond appropriately to that, not just go through the motions. Let me pray for us when we get out here. I'm about running out of time. Uh, Father, thank you so much for these guys. Thank you again. Thank you for this great church that we have. Thank you for the story of Jonah and for the wisdom you've given to us. May you watch over us. May we apply this. May we understand that you have been gracious and long-suffering for your people for so long. And we thank you for the opportunity to be your children. May we love you, may we praise you, may we honor you, and may we have such great joy in our lives that comes in a true relationship with you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks, guys, on Zoom.